what is your servant? That you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Have you ever received a gift that's so overwhelming that you actually wonder why you received it? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? These are the words of Mephibosheth, a man who on the surface deserved no favor from King David. And you know, these words here, his question to King David indicates that he knew he didn't deserve favor from King David. A dead dog such as I. Mephibosheth was King Saul's grandson. King Saul was the previous king to David. And he was the sworn enemy of David. He even attempted to murder David on several occasions. And what's more, Mephibosheth was a cripple. The text says that he was lame in his feet. It means society would have no use for him. Now, despite all this, David treated Mephibosheth with kindness because of his father, Jonathan, the friend of David. And Mephibosheth ate at King David's table, the king's table, for the rest of his life. Despite being an enemy, despite being a cripple. Today we look at the story of God creating the world. And how should we respond to the grandeur of creation? <clears throat> Friends, we should be like Mephibosheth. God's creation should inspire in us pure humility. Who are we that in light of such a vast and magnificent universe that God should have a mind for us? So today we want to see God's glory God's glory in creation from Genesis 1 and 2. And I pray that as we approach these chapters, we would have humility. Humility. Now, before we jump into the first two chapters of Genesis, it's necessary for us to build a little bit of groundwork, right? And not just a little bit, I'm actually a little bit more than what we actually do. Because the book of Genesis is very important, it's very long, and there are a lot of questions that come with it. So, to build that groundwork, we're going to answer a few preliminary questions, right? The first question is a two-parter. Why read Genesis, and why tackle it in the way that we're going to tackle it? So, if you mold it over, why read Genesis, you could come up with plenty of good reasons to read Genesis. But I think if you consider the current context of Christianity, it's all the more important to read Genesis. Why? Because many Christians ignore the Old Testament. Many Christians ignore the Old Testament, but the Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus. The Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus, and what's more, the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. Friends, the Bible is a story. The Bible is a story. Now, by that, I don't mean that the Bible is fiction. No, the Bible is a real story set in real history. And it's a story in that it progresses, right? Like all stories. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. So Genesis 
is the beginning of the story. If you're going to know any story, you should know the beginning. So, Genesis sets the stage, like any good beginning, for the rest of the story, and it orients us to who God is. It orients us to the place of humans in creation. It orients us us to God's reaction to sin and God's grace. So that name, Genesis, that name Genesis actually means origins. Origins. It's the origins of, of much of our knowledge about these key biblical themes. So why read Genesis? It's because a lot of people ignore it. And we need to know the beginning to know everything else. But why tackle it in the way we're going to tackle it? If you got a newsletter this week or if you picked up a, a sermon schedule card, I don't have it in front of me. I like to show things to you. Uh, I don't ha- uh, if you have a sermon schedule card, you will notice that we're going to cover all of Genesis in a matter of 12 weeks. You say, well, that's, that's, you're pretty eager there. That's pretty ambitious. Uh, to which I would reply, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, but why, why do it this way? It's often the case that individual stories from the Old Testament are kind of read in isolation from one another. Right? They're, they're kind of seen as, as individual little pieces. Instead of seeing them in how they fit with the larger picture. Right? So think of Genesis as if you're looking at a huge painting. Right? A, a painting that spans uh, the length of a wall. Right? I don't know who here is into art or not, uh, but you could still imagine this, right? A painting that spans the length of a wall. Now, there are a couple ways you can approach taking in this kind of painting. You can either go up real close to it and see every detail, which would be an enriching experience, sure, Um, but it would be hard to see the whole picture while you're doing that. So instead, what we want to do is take a couple steps back so that we could see the painting one big section at a time and we could keep the whole big picture in view. So that's kind of the line of logic for taking in Genesis in big chunks. So if you look at, in broad strokes, the big picture of Genesis, it breaks down into two main but disproportionate sections. So you have the first 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters cover a huge amount of time and several characters. And then chapters 12 to 50 narrows the scope to a single family and covers a less amount of time. So the amount of ink spilled indicates what's more important. You know, the emphasis really is on that single family, chapters 12 to 50. So this is the start of the groundwork for Genesis, right? Why read it? Why do it in this way? But we got there, if we're doing a construction zone here, if we're establishing some groundwork, we see that there is an elephant that has walked on to the construction zone. And we got to talk about that elephant for a second. That elephant is, are we too smart for Genesis? Are we too smart for Genesis? Have we moved beyond Genesis? Maybe you talk about inks being spilled. There is much ink that's been spilt over the relevance or the accuracy of Genesis. 
Now, I got help this week by reading Old Testament scholar uh, T.D. Alexander. And to deal with this element, he deals with several different things. He deals with whether or not Genesis is history, whether or not Genesis is science, and then how we should read Genesis today. So when you talk about whether or not Genesis is history, right, there are some who would say that even Genesis itself, especially the first 11 chapters, wouldn't even claim to be reporting history. So is Genesis history? Now, for any debate, what's important is to clarify definitions. What does that mean? That means if you're going to say whether or not Genesis is history, well, what does history mean? What do you mean by history? If by history we mean an account of events that the author believed happened, then yes, Genesis is history. But history doesn't have to be exhaustive to be true, right? It doesn't have to cover or explain every single detail. Further, when we read the rest of the Bible, we find that people assume that what's presented in Genesis, something like God creating the heavens and the earth, like Adam and Eve being real people, like man created in God's image, the fall actually happening, people assume in the rest of the Bible that all that stuff actually happened. So as far as history, yes, Genesis claims to be history. Genesis claims to report events that actually happened. So deal that elephant. That elephant, right? Are we too smart for Genesis? Well, is Genesis science? We've got to grapple with that question. But once again, we got to clarify definitions, right? What do we mean by science? Is whether or not Genesis is science? Is Genesis a true account of the origin of the material universe? A true account of the origin of the material universe? Yes. On the other hand, does it provide all the information necessary for the purposes of modern science? say no. For example, Genesis does not talk about the intricacies of every species. It doesn't give all the details of fertility, of the process of growth. But even though Genesis doesn't provide all the information for modern science, it is not anti-science. If anything, the place given to humans in Genesis invites us to explore all the more. So, deal with that elephant, right? The relevance and accuracy of Genesis. From the very get-go, we have to remember that we must first read Genesis according to the purposes of its author. The original intent. That's any book of the Bible. Now, while we don't have time to give an exhaustive defense, there is a good reason to believe that while others may have had a hand in preserving Genesis, Moses is the author. Moses, the guy who led Israel out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land. Moses is the author of Genesis along with the four other first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. That means, if Moses is the author, that the first audience of Genesis, first people who read it, was Israel in the wilderness. 
when Israel went out from Egypt but hadn't yet entered the promised land, that in-between period. So then Moses. Moses is first writing to a group of nomadic shepherds so that they can celebrate the goodness of their creator. I don't know about you, but that purpose to celebrate the goodness of the creator, that purpose seems pretty relevant to me. Is that disappointing? Did you want something more? Let me tell you something. Our time in Genesis will not answer every question we have because its purpose isn't to answer every question we have. People often look to this book to answer questions it's not trying to answer. And you know what? They're, they're kind of missing out on the main point of it. Genesis exists to celebrate the fact that God made the world, not to explain all the details of how he made the world, though it does give some details of how he made the world. Yes, so we can explore some of the questions we have, but we first have to remember the main purpose of Genesis. That same Old Testament scholar, T.D. Alexander, he summarizes the main purpose of Genesis like this. The story of Genesis is the story of a good world made by a good God in man's role in that world. The story of how the stain of sin affects everything and the story of how God intends to reverse those effects. All right, friends, that's the groundwork, okay? It was a bit much. Are you still hanging on? Are you with me here? All right, I hope so because we haven't even got to the main part of the sermon yet. Okay? Today, we are looking at the creation account, the first two chapters of Genesis. Again, I'm not going to answer every question that you have. I know, I'm disappointing you left and right. Instead, what I hope to do is to present the biggest things God wants us to see in light of these chapters. To present what God ultimately wants us to get out of the creation account. Now, you could see two questions under those subpoints in the bulletin. You know, we're, we're going to trace what the chapters say, kind of at a skim, at a surface level, and then look at those big takeaways. But the main point, I think, for our whole time together, these two chapters here, these foundational chapters, is that the Creator God, who is all powerful and personal, gives us value, and mission. The creator God, who is all-powerful and personal, gives us value and mission. Now, reading Genesis 1 to 2 this week, I'll to be honest with you, I, I felt so inadequate. I felt so inadequate. Inadequate to capture all of God's glory contained in these first two chapters. So my prayer here is, is that we, can just, we could just catch a glimpse. We could just catch a glimpse of God's glory here in Genesis 1 to 2. So that first big point. God is powerful. God is powerful. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And it's not very hard to find in the Bible. If you're looking in the pew Bible in front of you, Genesis 1, 
is found on page one. And I'm going to start by reading the first five verses. The first five verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. The beginning is the beginning of everything that was made. Of time. Of space. Of matter. And who was there before the beginning? Who is the first character introduced in all the Bible? It's God. And as we'll see, that is hugely significant. And for now, we go on and notice what God does. God creates from nothing. God creates from nothing. In the beginning, there is this spectacular event that there is nothing, and then there is something. There's nothing, and then there is something. How does this happen? I think everybody has to deal and answer this question somehow. How do you get something from nothing? I can't even imagine what nothing is like. How do you get something from nothing? So what's said here is that there is something from nothing because of God. God, who exists outside of creation, creates ex nihilo. That's the Latin for out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God creates out of nothing. God made the beginning. But these verses set in motion even more than that. Verses 1 to 5 establish patterns for the rest of the days of creation. See the pattern of form and fullness. Of form and fullness. So God creates and then he orders. These are how all the days of creation are connected. So verse 2. See the earth is is emptiness, it's chaos. The Spirit of God's hovering creates a sense of expectation. Something's about to happen. So on that first day, you look at verse 4. God creates light and darkness. He creates the form. And then we see the fullness of that form on day 4. Look at verse 16. When God creates the sun and the moon. So here, just as I know, just as light precedes the sun so will light outlast the sun. We read that in the new creation in Revelation 22. So form and fullness. So look at the second day. Verse 7. God creates 
the form of the sea, the form of heaven or sky, everything above people. And then on the fifth day, verse 20, he fills the sea and he fills the sky with creatures, form, fullness. On the third day, God creates a fertile earth with vegetation. See that in verse 11. Then on the sixth day, he fills that fertile earth with creatures. So God creates and he brings order out of chaos. This is a pattern established in Genesis 1, even in the first few verses. But we see other things established just in these verses. What does God do at the beginning of each day? How does God create? He speaks. He speaks. Look at all those, and God said. Verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26. Genesis 1 shows that God speaks, and it happens. We also see that there's a steady progression. God's continuing to fill. He continues to look at his creation, calling it good. It's working toward a climax where God will call it very good. That's at the end of chapter 1. So look down at verse 26. The second part of the sixth day. Talking about the climax of God's creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jump to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Interestingly, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image. And more on that in a minute. But there appears to be a complexity within God. God is one, yet God is complex. But the big focus turns onto what exactly image means. What exactly does image mean? Let, let us create man in our image. Now, again, I'm going to disappoint you because entire books have been written on what it means for human beings to be made in God's image. But at the most basic level, at what's presented right here. Image is seen as what separates humans from the rest of creation. So it relates to our nature, our office, and our relationship with God. Nature, office, relationship. So we resemble God in our nature. We are able to reason, to have morality, to have language, to have relationships that are governed by love and commitment, to have creativity in all forms of art. And because of that nature, God has given humans, he calls them to represent him by ruling on the earth. 
This is the office God gives to humans. You see that word dominion in verse 26? This is the office of what scholars call vice-regent, ruling on God's behalf. So humans in the image of God, show our nature, our office, made in the image of God also means we can have a relationship with God unlike anything else in creation. A relationship with God unlike anything else in creation. That's the crowning, the crowning glory of what it means to be made in the image of God. Nature, office, relationship. And one last note. One last little note about image. You see that both male and female are in their own right made in the image of God. Male and female. So this is the image of God, the crowning of God's creation, that climax. God says it's very good. And what, is, what happens after God calls his creation very good? Well, we get to the seventh day. In the beginning of chapter 2, look at verse 1 there. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rests on the seventh day. And this isn't a rest of fatigue. God wasn't tired at the end of this week. No, this was a rest of completion, a rest of accomplishment. And there's something here, there's, something, there's a glimpse of something here that the rest of the Bible is going to develop. That we are meant to partake in this rest, in this rest of completion, of accomplishment. So even here of God resting after it's done, we hear echoes of Christ sitting after he completed and accomplished the work of salvation. So Christ died, he buried, he rose again, and he ascended to the Father, and he sat down because it was completed, because it was done. And we are called to partake in that rest. You get even a little hint of that right here. So this, friends, is the creation account. The pattern of how God made everything, how God made everything out of nothing, of the crowning glory of God's creation, the climax of it. Humans made in God's image, what that image means. And how God finished it all and accomplished it and called it very good. Now, I don't even think we've scratched the surface of everything we could possibly get out of Genesis 1. But of what we have seen, what does it tell us? What does it reveal to us about God? I normally don't like lists, but I'm going to make an exception because I want you to be able to keep track. What does the creation account tell us about God? I think we can at least see six things. Six things. All right, you ready? Number one. God is at the forefront. God is at the forefront. The focus is on him. Don't believe anyone who tells you that the main character of the Bible or history is you. 
I think of my dog, Penny, the Irish Terrier. And she is all Terrier. My parents' house is her domain. When some unidentified moving object enters her domain, Penny gets angry and she barks. When Penny wants to play, she brings you her toy and starts growling at you. When Penny wants to sleep, she sleeps. At my parents' house, it's Penny's world, and we're just living in it. That is not the case with us. Friends, God is the focus of creation. He comes first, not us. And we have to reckon with that. This is not our world. This is his world. God is at the forefront. And, you know, I think there's also an indication here. People have a fascination with other things. People have a fascination with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Like horoscopes are still a thing. The sun and the moon and the stars, they're only mentioned in passing. God comes before all of them. He made them. God at the forefront means that he stands behind everything. He is the one sovereign. He is the one king. There's no competition. And naturally, this creates questions. Like, what about evil? This account shows that everything God created was good. But at the same time, he stands behind everything. He was before everything. So this indicates that he must stand behind evil differently than he stands behind good because God is at the forefront. God comes first. That's the first thing the creation account shows us about God. Number two, God is self-existent. God is self-existent. The creation account shows us that God is not dependent on anyone. If you have raised a child, a a baby, babies are the exact opposite of this. Babies are dependent for everything and on anyone. Right? Why do they cry? It's because they need something. God is not dependent on anyone because he needs nothing. Think about God needs nothing. This also means that if God made everything, if God made everything, then everything is dependent on God. If God doesn't need anything, it also means that God didn't need to make the universe to get rid of his loneliness. God didn't need to make the universe. He's complete in himself. He is self-existent. So if God is self-existent, if he doesn't need anything from anyone, then that should tell us how we are to approach him. Because many people try to barter with God. Maybe bribe him, negotiate a little bit. Oh, God, if you do this for me, then I will completely live for you. You think God needs anything from you? God does not need our work. God desires our worship, yes. God does not need anything from us. He cannot be bribed. 
That's how big our God is. That's a God worthy of worship. God who needs nothing. Think of how much that elevates the concept of grace then. God needs nothing. And yet he shows us love. So, God is at the forefront. God is self-existent. Number three, God speaks in power and revelation. God speaks in power and revelation. The greatest power in the whole universe is the word of God. Because the word of God is what made the universe. And the instrument, the agent that God used to create was his word. And later, we see that Christ is called the word. Christ is called the agent of creation. Of Christ, the Bible says, by him all things were made. God speaks in power, but by speaking, God does more than create. God also reveals. God is a talking God. And we have his words written down. So think about this. God, the God that knows, the God that knows every single molecule, every single molecule of, of, of this pulpit, you go outside of all those trees out there, of every single blade of grass, that God knows everyone. If you look up at the sky at night, that God knows every star, that this God, this God speaks to us. And he is so infinitely wise that he speaks to us in a way that we can understand. A God with a mind like that can relate to limited people like us. That's a big God. Number five. Excuse me, number four. God is one and complex. God is one and complex. No mistake, God is one. That verb created in verse one is meant for a singular subject. But somehow, God is also other. Somehow, he can be labeled he and us. And that us can't be God and angels. We aren't made in the image of angels. What we see here is a glimpse of what's teased out in the rest of the Bible. And that's the Trinity. John 1 says that the word was with God and the word was God at the beginning. Number five, God is judge. God is judge. If God made everything, then this message is for everyone. It is more than we were just made by him. We were made for him. Because God made us, we owe him. Friends, this means that you don't get to decide to live however you want to live. This means that God didn't plop you down on earth to just do whatever you want to do. This means that life is not according to us. It's according to the Lord. And the Bible later confirms that every person will give an account to God and that every person will be without excuse for their disobedience to him. And you know, that's good news that God is judged because we all care about justice. But it's bad news that God is judged because we've all partaken in injustice. Friends, so let Christ stand in your place. Finally, number six, what, what does this creation account, Genesis 1, show us about God? Number six, God is uniquely glorified in his image bearers. 
God is uniquely glorified in his image bearers. We're going to see more of this in the next chapter. This goes against the philosophy of naturalism. goes against the philosophy of naturalism. You know what naturalism says? That we are all products of chance. And that our emotions, even, are only chemical reactions in our bodies. You know what the problem with that is? No one actually lives as if that's true. No one really considers us to be chance. No one really considers emotions just to be chemicals going off. But here, what's said is we are made in the image of God. We are given unique capacities and unique value. And the question becomes, have we lived up to the calling to reflect God to the world? And you know the only one who has done that? To reflect God to the world completely? Is Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. So if chapter 1 shows us that God is powerful, chapter 2 shows us that God is personal. Chapter 2 is a zoomed-in angle on what's described in 127, the creation of humans. It's a transition verse, verse 4. You pick it back up in verse 5. And we'll go through this chapter a little more quickly than the last one. Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll walk through this passage briefly. What does it say? You immediately see how God created man and where God put him. So God brings man into a world that's waiting to be cultivated. Verse 5, there's no bush, there's no small plant, there's no man to work the ground. We see the way that God created man. It was skillful. It's personal. Verse 7, so that God formed man. You think of a potter forming pottery, forming clay. God formed man, and then God breathed life into man. It's a personal connection to his creation. How God created man and where he put him. God placed man in Eden. Eden's sort of a royal park here. It's translation into the Greek is where we get the word paradise. After these verses, we read that Eden is in a central location near four rivers. And within the garden are trees. But God points out two in particular. The tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we skip down to verse 15. See how God created man. We see where God put man. Now we see God commissioning man and God warning man. Verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In these verses, God commissions man. God warns man. Commissions him in verse 15. The reason he put Adam in the garden was to work it, was to keep it. That means even before everything went bad, Adam woke up and went to work every day. So in chapter 1, if, if God's commission to man is, is a regal status of ruling in his place, in chapter 2, God's commission to man is priestly status, tending to his garden, guard, guarding God's place. This is God's commission to man. In verses 16 and 17, God warns Adam. He warns him. Once again, this separates us from animals. Right? Animals behave on natural instinct. God calls humans to set a course and to keep it. God warns Adam that if he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he will die. And what that means will be clarified in the rest of the Bible. But eating from this tree will cause Adam to know evil by actual experience, not just by fearing the Lord. And Adam accepts the terms of this agreement, accepts the terms of this warning on behalf of all of humanity. His choice will have consequences that affect the rest of history. The Bible declares that Adam accepts these terms on behalf of the rest of humanity. I'll see more about that next week. The dire consequences of that. So, we see how God created people. We see where he put them. We see God warning Adam. We see God commissioning Adam. The chapter closes. God describes the helper he gives to Adam. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man had called the living, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God describes the helper he gives Adam. And a helper is neither stronger nor weaker. A helper is a complement. A helper supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the person that's helped. So notice, God doesn't give Adam a duplicate or a clone. God gives Adam a complement. 
even established at the beginning, established at creation, marriage becomes the closest human relationship. Verse 24, see that? Shows us that marriage is an exclusive, no man leaves. Marriage is an exclusive, permanent, man holds fast. God sealed bond. They become one flesh. An exclusive, permanent, God sealed bond. And at the beginning, this created perfect personal harmony. Adam and Eve enjoyed each other in innocent delight. Everything's very good. So this is how God creates people. Where he put them, his commission to them, how he did it, his warning to them, the helper he gives Adam. What does it show us? This is how we're going to close. The biggest lessons to take from this. What does it reveal about what God has given us? This chapter. Friends, I'm going to break my rule again. I have another list. Five things. Five things this time. Five things. This account shows us that God gives life. God gives life. This deals with major components of our identity. Who we are at our core. Genesis 2 answers questions like where we came from and who made us. If you want to know your true purpose, the beginning of that is knowing answers to those questions. Where you came from, who made you. So God breathing life into us means we must honor him as the giver. Ultimately, we owe everything we have to the Lord, to the giver. That means we need to live with gratitude. And we need to live responsibly as good stewards of the gifts he's given us. Later, Paul will say, the Apostle Paul will say, to redeem the time. Redeem the time. Take a deep breath. That's a gift from the Lord. You thank him for it and you don't squander it. God gives life. Number two, God gives us value. God gives us value. The account of God creating humans gives us an accurate view of ourselves. If God has created us in his image, then he has stamped incredible value on each person. So for the basis of treating every person, and I mean every person, with justice, respect, and love, is that they are made in the image of God. Regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of that person's history with sin, regardless of disease, every person is made in the image of God. They have worth because God gives them worth. Friends, that's why God takes seriously the sins that demean that worth. Sins like murder, sins like abuse, sins like racism demean the worth of the image of God. While God gives us value, talking about an accurate view of ourselves, Genesis 2 reminds us that God made us from dust. Dust. We may be valuable friends, but we are not God. We are created. The value we have is not from ourselves. It's from what God has given us. So like the gospel, 
The gospel both humbles us and it lifts us up. The gospel says we have sinned and we need to be saved from sin. But it lifts us up by saying God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever may believe in him may not perish but have everlasting life. So here, the creation account, the image of God both humbles us and it lifts us up. God gives us life. God gives us value. Number three, God gives us mission. What does a creation account show us that God has given us? God gives us mission. God tells us how to live. You may be able to recognize the first two gifts, that God gives you life and that God gives you value, but don't forget this one. God tells us how to live. Do you think the God who is all good tells us how to live because he somehow wants something bad for you? No. That's the lie that Adam and Eve are going to believe. God giving us mission means in part that work isn't bad. Just a sort of a, a, a side note. God gives Adam the work of cultivating the garden. The fall didn't create work. The fall just made work hard. You testify, you get an amen, and the work is hard. People want to know what heaven's like. In the new heavens, in the new earth, God will redeem work. That's going to be angels with robes flying around. Work is a good thing. Work's what we're made for. We're made to do stuff. We're made to be stewards of gifts. God gives us mission. Number four, God gives us companionship. God gives us companionship. Genesis 2 shows us that we aren't made to live in isolation. Just as God is one yet complex, so do Adam and Eve become one, yet they are separate. Now, there, there's so much more we can unpack. There's some things we can clarify. If you aren't married, you are still made in the image of God. Know that. And you can still enjoy human companionship. Why does God give us a local church? Why does God give us good friends? But marriage is the highest form of human companionship. And it's the only relationship where God intends the gift of sexual union. But, as big of a gift as it is, marriage is a temporary gift. It's a temporary gift. It won't last forever. At creation, before everything goes bad, God expresses what this highest form of companionship is supposed to look like. What's declared here? It's heterosexual monogamy. That's God's creation design. What does that mean? That means there is only one Eve for Adam. There are not several Eves, and there is not another Adam. God gives us companionship, gives it to each of us, and in the highest form, it's in marriage. Number five, what does God give us? What does this creation account reveal that God gives us? Go back over. God gives us life. God gives us value. God gives us mission. God gives us companionship. Last one, number five. God gives us peace. God gives us peace. 
What is the state of everything at the end of chapter 2? What's Eden like then? It's a place of perfect peace between God and people. How do we get back there? In many ways, how we get back to Eden is the story of the rest of Genesis. And it's really the story of the rest of the Bible. And the truth is, everyone longs to get back to Eden. Everyone wants to go back there. Everyone wants that perfect peace, that perfect peace with God. Even the creation, Romans 8 says, is groaning, is longing to be redeemed. This is where Christ comes in, who bought our redemption with his blood so that those who believe in him may have peace with God. And friends, his finished work means he is making all things new and he will establish the new creation where it will be Eden and more. This is what God gives us here in creation. So think back to David. If you can think all the way back to the beginning, to David. David's kindness struck Mephibosheth. It struck him with wonder. How could you do this? could you do this for me? How could David do that? How could David act in this way? It's because David knew he was just like Mephibosheth. And where did he learn this? One way, he learned it by looking at creation. David wrote Psalm 8. He said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Friends, the wonder of it all. When we look at creation, look at God's glory in creation. Look how big God is. How vast the universe is. The wonder of it all is that when we see this, And then we realize God has a mind for us. God loves us. God loves us so much that he would give his son. You see all of creation in this? That should inspire worship and humility. This is the God of creation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, who is like you? There is no God besides you. Who was with you at the beginning? It is you, God. We worship you, for you are self-existent. You are complete in yourself. You existed before anything. You existed in eternity past. No one has made you. You have made everything. And on you, Lord, we depend for life. For everything we have, we depend on you. And God, you are a good father. You've given us so much. God, you've even given us a way to get back to Eden. And for us, for us, we see your universe and you have a mind for us. Oh, Lord. How majestic is your name.
and all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.